You know, I was reading uh, earlier this week because somebody had mentioned it, but uh, technology is advancing so fast that even in our watches, you, you hear smart watches. Uh, you can get one from Samsung or from Apple or uh, from Google, and they have smart smart watches now that have um, AI, artificial intelligence. And, and it somehow is able to measure to where even if that smartphone, they, I, I don't think a Samsung or uh, you can Google it. Maybe Google has it. I don't know. But uh, you can read about it. But if it senses that you're being boring, it will start beeping and it will alert you. And, and so somebody was saying, you, you know, you should get that, Pastor Jeff. And I think, why would I want to get that? Why would I want to get a sm- smartphone that beeps when it tells you that you're boring? I, I'd be embarrassed because this thing would be beeping all the time if I was up here. So, you know, we, we have that technology that's available and, and things that do, you know, these kinds of things for us. But one of the things that I want to say as we continue to go through the book of Jeremiah, that sometimes people think there's this chapter after chapter of judgment and, and God rebuking the people. And it seems as though God is angry. And I think that sometimes as we read the scriptures that we get a wrong view of the heart of God as he's speaking these things. First of all, God is brokenhearted just as Jeremiah is the weeping prophet and he is mourning. And we're going to see that in this chapter. And when the Lord says, you know, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned to other gods? Some people, they read that and they think God is like, you know, the leaning over the banister of heaven with the lightning bolts. I'm going to get you. And why have you done this? But I believe it's a broken heart Father, that is saying these things. Why have you turned away from me? Why have you sinned? And so we go through chapter after chapter of reading these things. And and as we do, um, sometimes we can kind of get a little bit bored with it or we dismiss it or uh, we begin to think, uh, you know, it's just repetitive. But here's the thing that I think that the Lord is trying to get Uh, you know, that point to us and for us to understand that first of all, the word of God is not to be boring. And as we go through the word of God, I pray that you or me, that we would never be bored with the word of God because sometimes people are. And as we read the word of God, as we go through chapter after chapter of, uh, of gloom and, and warning, God is telling us something that sin and rebellion is very, very serious. And we need to understand that. And here is a nation that's going to go into captivity. And as we went into chapter 8, as the Lord is saying to them that you committed these sins, they were burning their own children on the arms of Moloch in the Valley of Gehenna. He lists their sin in chapter 7. He says that you are ones that steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and burn incense to Baal and walk after other gods whom you do not know. And as we enter into chapter 8, he says what's going to happen is Babylon's going to come in and they're going to take you captive and there's going to be devastation. There's going to be destruction like you've never seen. There's going to be death and they're going to go to the graves. They're going to go to the tombs and they're going to, to throw the bones out and scatter the bones. And, and it's going to be, you know, terrible and it's going to be horrible. But the Lord is telling us that's what happens to us as we read this, that if we rebel against him and rebel against the word of God, then our lives will be scattered and it will be a grave situation. 
really seriously. And, and that we will end up in captivity. And sometimes we think that, well, you know, it's not going to be that bad. That's what the false prophets were saying. They're actually saying peace and, and everything will be okay. And, and they had the word of God, but they had ignored it. They refused to listen to the Lord. So here are some very important lessons for us. It's like um, as you read Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, right? I think most of us know that. And over and over again, as the emphasis is the word of God, how important it is in our lives and the psalmist who's writing it. And I think it was probably David that wrote Psalm 119, that thy word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. And the psalmist goes on and says, uh, how can a young man uh, cleanse his way by taking heed to the word of God, the importance of the word of God, learning the word of God, keeping the word of God, how valuable in, in the word of God is. And so it's told to us in those what, 179 verses to tell us the importance of God's word in our own lives and keeping it and having it worked out in our lives. The second longest chapter in the Bible, does anybody know what it is? It's Numbers chapter 7. And Numbers chapter 7, that chapter is given, I believe, 89 verses on giving. So the Lord is telling us how important giving is. But also we see, like when we study the book of Job, in the first two chapters you have this, this scene that takes place uh, as Satan is before the throne of God and have you consider my, certain, uh, my servant Job? And Satan says yes, and, and, and he throws this challenge out to the Lord. He'll curse you. And, and we look at that, and it's interesting. And then Job goes through those losses in chapters 3 all the way to chapter 37, all these chapters that Job is in the ash heap, you know, with sackcloth on, having a discussion uh, with his three friends, and he ends up calling them miserable counselors. And there's a lot of confusion. Even as we were singing about and what Jesse was talking about in those trials that seem so long, and you go through chapter after chapter as Job is hurting and his three friends are, are communicating with him. And, and, and you wonder why so much? Because the trials that we go through and the loss that we can go through, that season can seem so long, can it? And there can be confusion. And we get very emotional, even as Job was emotional and and we wonder, Lord, are you going to speak to me? And the Lord did end up in chapter 38 speaking to Job and answering Job. So the word of God, as we go through it, there's a reason why these things are written for our admonition, but never come to the point of thinking that it's boring. It's, it's not worth reading. It is because it's telling us something, even as the Lord desires to speak to us here tonight. So we went as far as, as verse 7, and we're going to pick it up at, at verse 8 again, that he's speaking about that there's going to be this captivity that's going to take place. Judgment's going to come because you have rebelled because of your sins. And there was a form of religiousness. Remember that in chapter 7 to chapter 10, what we see is Jeremiah is at the gate of the temple, and, and um, he is speaking these words. And the people they uh, had brought in their idols and there was a form of religiousness, uh, but it was all in, in false worship as he is going to speak against their false gods, their false worship, their false confidence because they were saying the temple, hey, everything's going to be okay. This is the temple. This is Jerusalem. Nothing's going to happen to us. And also he's going to speak to them, you know, uh, uh, 
about their, their, their false hope that they had. And so here we continue reading as in verse 8 of chapter 8 of Jeremiah, how can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Look, the false pen of the scribe certainly works falsehood. And so he's addressing their false prophets as well. And the wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? So as we read this, they had the law and they thought because we had the law, that were okay, but they had rejected the word of the Lord. The prophets had come to them to give it to them. We know that during this time that Josiah, that he found the book of the law uh, or Helkiah the priest and read it to him. So he calls for uh, reforms to take place and, and worship to be restored, temple worship and the Passover. So they had it, but they had rejected it. James tells you and I that we are to be not just hearers of the word, but what? Doers of the word. And that's so important. And sometimes if we're not careful as Christians, we can you know, carry our Bibles around and say, oh, I know my Bible. Uh, I have the word of God. But yet we can ignore portions of the word of God and we can dismiss it. And it's important for us not just to know the Word of God, but to be a doer of the Word of God as well. That's where blessing comes in. That's what godly wisdom is all about. Uh, when we talk about godly wisdom, it's not just knowing it, but having it worked out in your life and, and, and having it in your heart. Because the heart out of the heart comes the abundance and issues of life, right, is what the Bible says. So it's important that we don't walk away from the word of God, even as James says, that don't be like that man that looks in the mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like. In other words, every morning we look in the mirror, don't we? And, you know, we see the smudges and we need to comb our hair and all of this. We don't just walk away and just, you know, go to work or, or wherever we go to. We comb our hair, we you know, wash our face, we fix ourselves up. We don't walk away and forget about what we look like. And yet what can happen is, is that there can be those who say, oh, I know the Bible. Uh, I've been to Bible study. I, I went to children's ministry. I went to youth group. Uh, I was in this Bible study. And, and yet they really haven't taken heed to the word of God. So here he's saying that you've ignored, you've rejected the word of the Lord. And, and how can you say that we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us when the false pen of the scribes certainly works falsehood? So there was these false prophets coming along as well and saying you can ignore the word of the Lord. And they were speaking falsely as we continue in verse 10. Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to those who will inherit them because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophets even to the priests, everyone deals falsely. So in chapter 7, as I read to you, the sins that were going on in the land, you, you commit adultery, you commit murder, you steal you're lying, all these sins. And now we know that it has been told to us already a couple times that from the leadership, from the religious leaders and from the, the uh, civil leaders all the way through the people, a big problem was covetousness. There was greedy, greediness that was a big problem as well. And that's, you know, the covetousness is uh, one of the Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandment that's given to us in the Old Testament. Uh, and you're not to covet, you're 
neighbor's wife and, and donkey and, and uh, servant and all that. It's just wanting what somebody else has or wanting more of something. It is something that Jesus would warn his disciples about very specifically. As there was this one that came to Jesus and said, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. And, and Jesus said, who made me a judge over you guys? And, and what he was speaking is, you guys need to settle it. You have the law. But he would turn to his disciples and he would point out something that was a problem. And he said, beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist of the things that he possesses. And that should be something that, that rings true in our lives. Uh, God can bless us with things, but true blessing comes from knowing him and walking with him and being good stewards what the Lord has given to us and, and being able to reach out and help others and invest in the kingdom of God. And here covetousness was uh, bringing them down spiritually because they just wanted more of, of what others had. And, and it was from the, the greatest to the least in the land that was taking place here. So here, as we, we read this, verse 11, for they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people, saying slightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace peace, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall, and in time of their punishment, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. So here there um, is the false prophets saying, peace, peace. Again, they were saying the temple, the temple. We have peace because we're God's covenant people. We have the temple. We have this holy place. And here they were saying peace. And there was going to be no peace. And there is no peace in our lives if we rebel against the Lord. If we are ones that we live for self. Jesus said to his disciples, some of the last words he said to them in the upper room, he says, peace that I have, I give to you, and it is peace not of this world. And you see, we have peace with God as we come to Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven and we have relationship, but he desires to give us the peace of God. And that is a peace, just a confidence and a comfort and an assurance, a peace that passes understanding that he desires to give to us. And we cannot have that if we don't have that closeness with the Lord. It's not a worldly peace. It is a lasting peace. And I know that many of you have the testimony that when you came to Christ, that all of a sudden there was a peace, right? There was just a peace that came into your heart. I know it was for me, a peace that I'd never experienced before. It wasn't of the world. And here they're saying peace. And, and there's going to be no peace in our lives unless we come and surrender to Jesus Christ and live for him and walk with him. And here he says that you sin and you're not even ashamed of it. You don't blush. Uh, you flaunt that sin is what you are doing. Um, and you're not even ashamed of it. We see that in our culture today, don't we? We see that in our nation, that as we see this moral and biblical decline, spiritual decline, that people are given over to sin, and, and, and there's no shame. They flaunt those sins. They have parades. They want everybody to celebrate it. And here, that's what was taking place at this time. 
And verse 13, as we continue, now verse 13 to the end of the chapter, uh, these verses kind of blend three voices here as we sort it out. There is God's voice of, of judgment, there's the people's voice of despair, and then the prophet's voice of anguish as he sees the ruin that's going to come to a nation. And in verse 13, I will surely consume them, says the Lord. No grapes shall be on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaves shall fade, and the things I have given them shall pass away from them. So uh, here as um, the land is going to be devastated by the judgment of God, um, we know that the prophet Habakkuk also speaks during this time, and he would write about the land being devastated. And as he says, there's going to be no grapes, there's going to be no figs, the leaves shall fade. You know, as I was uh, looking at this this afternoon, it reminded me so much, as many of you know, Psalm 1. And in Psalm 1, let me read it to you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So Psalm 1, the psalmist is telling us that blessed is the one that is established in the word of God. You're the one that is planted, that you're established, and, and you're going to be refreshed. You're like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water. And you're going to bring forth fruit in your life, and, and you're going to be refreshed, and, 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 and the, you're not going to wither away. And those who don't have the Word of God, there's going to be a dryness and a barrenness that happens in their life, or if we choose to walk away from the Word of God. The Lord wants to refresh us and renew us, and, and it's not going to happen. Now, literally, the land is going to be devastated, but we also know that in our own lives, that spiritually, this will take place. You ignore the Word of God, you walk away from the ways of the Lord, you just begin to wither away spiritually. And that's what's being told to us here. And in verse 14, why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves and let us enter the fortified cities and let us be silent there. For the Lord our God has put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. So it'd be like drinking poison water instead of turning to the Lord. Uh, what they did is they said, we'll just flee to the fortified cities. We'll be in walled cities and we'll be fine. But but all of a sudden, this, uh, this judgment is going to come to them. And we looked for peace, verse 15, but no good came. And for a time of health, and there was trouble. The snorting of his horses was heard from Dan, as in the northern part of the country. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones. For they have come and devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those who dwell in it. And for behold, I will send serpents among you, vipers which cannot be charmed, verse 17 tells us. And they shall bite you, says the Lord. So the false prophets were saying again that there would be peace, but it wasn't going to come to pass. And you're going to hear rumbling that's going to come from the north, beginning in Dan, sweeping southward to Jerusalem. And it's going to be like being bitten by a venomous or poisonous snake. You're a viper that's poisonous. You're going to be bit, and it's going to harm you and, and do you in. You know, the enemy, Satan, wants to strike at us. 
He's like a serpent. He's called the serpent of old, isn't he? And he wants to come and he wants to, to get at you and he wants to poison your life and he wants to bring harm and death to you. Death spiritually. He wants to bring death, you know, to your soul. And he'll do anything that he can. And so James says that we are to submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But he is that serpent looking at who he can strike. And it's the one who rebels against the Lord. It's the one who ignores the word of the Lord. It's not taking heed to the Lord. And here he says that it's going to be like the serpents among you, the vipers. And they shall bite you, says the Lord. And then as we continue in verse 18, I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. Listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? And why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images with foreign idols? In verse 20, I have this verse underlined. That the harvest is past, summer is ended, and we're not saved. So as I said, that you hear the voice of the Lord, you hear the, the anguish of the people, and, and you hear the mourning of the prophet that's here. And as we read this in verse 18, Jeremiah is mourning for the people. I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me, is what he says. I mean, he's just is mournful for the message that he is giving. You know, do we mourn for those around us who don't have the Lord? Once in a while, I hear Christians say, you know, I can't wait till God comes and he judges those people or this group and fire and brimstone and a ha-ha, I can't wait till kind of like they burn in hell. We should have a heart for the lost. We should be mourning for those around us that don't have him, that don't know him, that are rebelling against him. And here, Jeremiah, he's seeing the death of a nation here and he's mourning about it. He says, My, I faint. And Isaiah was the same way. We know that Daniel, when he sees the judgment that's going to come in the last days, that he was so overwhelmed that, that he fainted and he felt weak and he felt sick. And then he hears the words of, you need to get up, Daniel, and you need to be about the king's business. And as we see the things around us that are taking place that concern us and 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 of course, we see uh, the <clears throat> what's taking place in culture, society, and how anti-God is getting, and, and it should cause us to mourn. But we need to be about the king's business, amen, to continue to give a message of truth and a message of hope, because we have it, the only hope that there is, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. So here is Jeremiah, he mourns for the people. The Lord answers, verse 19, he says, listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter is, we read it again of my people from a far country. It's not the Lord in Zion. It's not her king in her. Why have they provoked me to anger and their carved images with foreign idols? So here the Lord, he, I believe, also brokenhearted, saying, why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images, with their idols? Why have they done this? It was the righteous anger that the father had because they had rebelled against him. He had given them everything, as we saw in the previous chapters, for them to be blessed, to come into the land, freeing them from Egypt and through the wilderness and, and giving them the land and defeating the enemies and blessing the land. 
but yet they refused to acknowledge that. And they refused to turn to him. So verse 20 is now the people's cry. That the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we're not saved. I think that this is probably one of the saddest verses that we have in the Old Testament. And I believe that it's the cry of the people when the Babylonians come in, and there's three waves of captivities that take place. There's 605 when, when Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He hears his father has died. He's going to take the throne. So he's in battle there and, and in Egypt, and on uh, his way back to take the throne, he stops in Jerusalem. He takes the choice men of Judah away. That's Daniel and his three friends. Uh, to captivity. And then there's a second wave where Ezekiel the prophet is taken off into captivity. And that takes place in 597 BC. But then in 586 BC, that Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys Jerusalem, destroys Solomon's temple. And I believe that this is the response of the people as that takes place. There is great devastation. As we continue to go through Jeremiah, he, he's going to give these pictures, these, these symbols. You know, He's going to take a pot and break it and say, this is what's going to happen to Jerusalem and, and other things that he'll show them as he's warning them. But as Jerusalem would be destroyed, the people looking back, the people seeing what's going on, the harvest is past and summer is ended and we're not saved. You know, people will say, why is the Old Testament full of judgment? And, and why does it seem like God's such an angry God? He, he, he's not angry. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. He's the same Jesus yesterday, today, and forever. And that goes with the Father. Because the Father and the Son are one. And we know that, that God is reaching out with a hand of love and judgment and long, uh, love and patience and long-suffering. Judgment is going to come. But I always remind people that uh, the greatest judgment that we're going to see on this earth is going to come yet, yet, yet future. And that's in the tribulation period. And we spent last year 11 months going through the book of Revelation and chapter 6 through 18 talking about how God's pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejected world. But yet we see that his hand of grace is still reached out. There are those who are going to get saved in the tribulation. Matter of fact, chapter 7 of the book of Revelation tells us that there's going to be many from every tribe, tongues, people, and nations that are going to come to Christ through the evangelism of 144,000 Jews, through um, the witness of the two witnesses in Jerusalem, chapter 11, through the proclamation of the angel that's going to preach to everyone the gospel in chapter 14 of the book of Revelation. So people are going to get saved. They're going to be persecuted heavily by the Antichrist. But as we go through those chapters of the book of Revelation, you know, chapter 6 and 7 and 8, all the way through chapter 19, when we see the second coming of Jesus Christ, it's heavy. It's serious. And again, it tells us that God is going to judge sin and Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. But the Lord has done everything that he can to save us. So much so did he send his son to die for us on Calvary's cross. And he took the judgment for you and for me. As he was on that cross and took our sins upon himself and made atonement for our sins. 
And I hope that we always remember that because sometimes Christians will say, well, God is judging me. No, he's not judging you. He took the judgment for you on the cross. Now he will discipline us. He will chasten us. And why does he do that? Because Hebrews tells us because of his love for us. In any of us that are parents, we discipline our children. Why? Because we don't want them to grow up to, to be spoiled. We don't want them to, uh, to not know what is right and what is wrong. We do. And, and they need to be disciplined. And discipline is a good thing. And we do it out of love, right? Because we love our children. And it's a loving father that will chasten us, discipline us. He disciplines those whom he loves, as we read in the book of Hebrews, and he loves you. But don't think that he's judging you and don't picture him as the mean old man again up in heaven with the long beard and lightning bolts on his side ready to zap you if you get out of line. But everything that the Lord does for you and allows to happen in your life, that he's doing it, it's an expression of his love. And sometimes there are things that happen that are painful or difficult or hard. And it's like, Lord, why? And we don't know. But he is doing a work in us to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And I do know this, that as Revelation chapter 19 tells us, that one day, right before the Lord comes back, when we are in heaven together, that we will say, righteous and true are your judgments, Lord. Righteous and true are your decisions, Lord. On this side of eternity, we don't always see it. But we can trust him. That he's working all things for good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. And his purpose, to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And so he has eternities, you know, in perspective and in view in working in our lives. But know that he loves you and he will always love you. And even as Paul writes that in Romans chapter 8, we quote it, we hear it. And sometimes people will quote it to us when we're not ready to hear it. God works all things for good. And we're thinking, how is this going to be good? And it can be painful to hear. But he is in eternity's perspective. And then he goes, what can separate us from the love of God? Can famine and distress and, 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 and tribulation from a man who went through so much, Paul the Apostle. And he says, I'm convinced that nothing will separate us from his love, which is unsearchable, indescribable, unconditional for you and for me. And when we go through trials or difficulties, we can begin to think that the Lord has withdrawn his love for us, and he hasn't. His love remains. He took the judgment, Jesus, on the cross but he does work in our lives, allowing us to go through painful times for an eternal purpose that we don't fully understand on this side of eternity. But I do know this, that he will perfect that which concerns you. And he is working for good for all things to be worked together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And when we're overwhelmed with emotion and we're overwhelmed, you know, that's where we need to turn to the Word of God and stand on the Word of God because our emotions can get the best of us. But here, as here they're saying that this, this verse, that the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we're not saved. I just wonder if that's going to be said when the rapture of the church happens. 
that people that we love and we've been talking to and we've been saying, hey, the Lord's coming back and we've been sharing the gospel. And they said, oh, I'm not going to make a decision now. Oh, maybe another time. Or in rebellion against the Lord. And when the rapture happens and we go, I wonder if there's going to be the cry of the people that are left behind. The harvest is in. Summer is over. We're not saved. And I say that just to remind us to keep praying for those around you who don't know the Lord. Keep praying and keep sharing and, and, and you continue to, to lift them up before the Lord. Keep speaking to them and loving them and giving them truth. So here is the cry of the people. And then in verse 21, For the herd of the daughter of my people, I am hurt, I am mourning. Uh, astonishment has taken hold of me. There's no balm in Gilead. There's no physician there. Why then is there no, no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? It, it reminds me, Jesus, he's the great physician. He's the true shepherd of God. And you remember that when he went to the tax collecting table there in Capernaum and he saw a man named Levi and he said, you follow me. And it says that Levi later on, his name changed to Matthew that he would get up from that tax collecting table, no longer serving the king of Rome, but going to serve the king of kings, and he follows Jesus. And you remember that as uh, the Gospels tell us that Matthew, that he had a a gathering, uh, had all his tax collecting buddies and others over to his house to meet Jesus. And the religious leaders see that. And I believe that Matthew was doing that because he was introducing to his friends, you know, that this is the one I'm going to follow now. This is the one that, that has changed my life. And, and being a tax collector in those days, as most of you know, they were very despised. They were hated. So he has his other tax collecting buddies and other sinners that are there. And the religious leaders come by and they notice it. And they said to, to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus heard that. And he knew their hearts. And he said, go and learn what this means, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And he was quoting from the Old Testament there. And and those religious leaders, they boasted in how much they knew. They boasted in, in, in you know, knowing uh, how many words were in the book of Isaiah. They boasted in, in knowing how many, you know, every dot and tittle of the book of Isaiah. They could tell you the middle word of the book of Isaiah. But here the Lord is saying to them, go and learn what this means. That so you have all this knowledge, you boast in it, but you don't know the heart of God. You don't know the heart of God. And he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And we need to understand, because sometimes we look at others, and, and I can catch myself doing this myself. Oh, that group, or these people, or that person, or you know, those at work, or that neighbor, the family members, and we're just, err, you know, and we just grit our teeth, and And we need to look at people the way that he wants us to look at people. That they're sick. Those who don't have Christ, they're sick spiritually and needed the great physician Jesus. And there he is having dinner with 
the most despised people in the land because he loved them and wanted to bring salvation to them. Pastor John spoke on a couple weeks ago when he was filling in for me when I was down at Aurora that he spoke on Luke chapter 7. It's one of my favorite stories as one of the Pharisees, again, you know, invited Jesus over for dinner and Jesus very graciously accepted the invitation. And as he went over to dinner, he was a rude host, Simon, the, the, the Pharisee, and all these people were there in the house and, and Simon didn't greet Jesus and Simon didn't greet him with oil, you know, for, and to wash his feet and to give him, greet him with a kiss. That was very important back in those days, hospitality. And all of a sudden, in the, the dinner, here comes this woman, only known as a sinner, probably a harlot, and she falls down at the feet of Jesus. And I love that story of Luke chapter 7. And, and there she is crying, she's weeping, and she's washing his feet with her tears and drying them with their hair. And what is Simon doing? The Pharisee, he's thinking, he's not saying it out loud, but the text tells us that he's saying if he only knew what kind of woman was touching him. And that's where Jesus amazed at this woman here in her brokenness, in her brokenness, at the feet of Jesus, weeping. It took a lot of courage for her to run into that house. And he says, I have something to tell you, Simon. You were a rude host to me. You didn't greet me. You didn't give me a kiss on the cheek. You, you didn't wash my feet. You... He didn't anoint my head with oil. Here is this woman that she's been weeping and washing my feet and she's worshiping. And he would turn to that woman. And as he told Simon a story, you know, he said, the one who is forgiven loves much. And he turned to her and said, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. The incredible compassion of our Lord that changed lives. And I believe that it was probably as you put things together chronologically and you, you read some of the scholarship and Dr. Edersheim, you know, as, as I read his book, as he puts the, the, the events of the gospel uh, together chronologically, that probably right before that time, that there was Jesus on a hillside in Galilee saying, come to me all of you who worry and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come learn in me and you'll find rest for your souls. For I'm gentle and humble. And come yoke yourself with me and for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I think that she was out there in that crowd perhaps hearing that as he was speaking to the multitudes, and she said, I've got to go to him. I don't care who's in there. I don't care if all the guests are in there. And you know, when she came into that room, there was a gasp. How could she? And she leaves, receiving the salvation of the Lord. There are many people out there that they're tired and they're confused and yes, they're in sin. 
And we can look at them as being dirty and ugly or whatever the case may be. But Jesus Christ came and died for them. And I hope that we never lose that. And I hope for us in the day that we're in, that we would say that, Lord, I want to see people the way that you do. And that we would have a heart for the lost. For those who get under our skin, those who bug us, those that, that we work alongside of. We talked about on Sunday, you know, Paul the Apostle in his first imprisonment in Rome, he was chained to a Roman guard 24-7, and he writes the prison epistles. He never says, I'm a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Caesar Nero. He says, no, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And my chains are for the furtherance of the gospels, what he writes in the book of Philippians, one of the prison epistles. And he said, it's evident in the palace guard. And then as he writes another prison epistle, Colossians, he says, those of the palace guard greet you. There were people getting saved. And you can imagine being chained to Paul the Apostle. Do you think Paul the Apostle will witness to you? Of course he would witness to you. And that's what we're going to talk about on Sunday is Paul gave his last defense. And the Lord would say to Paul about 10 years before that time that you've testified of me in Jerusalem, you're going to testify me in Rome. And as you feel chained to that workplace or that situation that you're in, that it would be truly for the furtherance of the gospel. One of the great, the, you know, most requested prayer requests that I get from people is, you know, the workplace that I'm in is hard, a relationship with others. And I know it's hard and I know it's difficult, but keep praying. And have a heart for those who are lost because they are sick and there's a great physician and I know that there are people that they don't want to hear about the Lord or rebel against the Lord. Uh, they don't want to hear it, but you keep praying, you keep praying, you keep praying, and don't give up. Don't give up. You know, Jesus in Luke's gospel, I was reading that this morning, but Luke gives us a little different the synoptic gospels. In chapter 9, it says that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then it talks about how he was in Samaria and down in Judea. He sent out the 70 throughout the cities down there. But then Jesus, he, he says something. And speaking of the, the heart of the Lord that's mourning here, why have they forsaken me? Why have they turned to others? That as you read in verse 13 of Luke 10, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who were exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. And sometimes again, we picture Jesus, he's saying, oh, Bethsaida and, and, and as Chorazin, woe to you. You know, if you would have realized Tyre and Sidon would have repented a long time ago since sackcloth and that, and you, Capernaum, oh, you are exalted to heaven. Great is going to be judgment for you. I think that Jesus is there down in, in Judea. He's looking up north and he's saying, oh, Chorazin, oh, Bethsaida. Capernaum, those guys, a lot of those guys were from those cities. Peter was from Capernaum, and I wonder what they're thinking as they hear that. Jesus is saying, oh, Capernaum, you were exalted in heaven. But you've rejected me. You saw the mighty works. 
And it really is amazing because throughout time, as the Lord created this world, this, this planet that he singled out, as he put human beings on it and then singled out a nation, Israel, and singled out a city, Capernaum, where he spent more time than any other place on earth, where most of the gospel took place in that little town of Capernaum for nearly you know, three years. Capernaum was the holy of holies, the tangible presence of God in human flesh, walked among them. And I just pictured the Lord going, saying, oh, Capernaum, you were exalted in heaven, but you've rejected me. You're going to be brought down. So the Lord mourns for those who have rejected him, don't want to know him, And I hope that our hearts are stirred tonight as we close this chapter because here's the thing. That he is going to judge sin. And he's going to judge this world. Babylon's going to come in. Going to destroy Jerusalem as the conversation and the prophecies go forward. I can't wait till the Lord does away with Revelation 17 and 18. Religious Babylon and commercial Babylon, done away with, that has deceived men throughout the history since Genesis. So there is judgment that's coming, but in the meantime, may we have a heart for people to share with them and give them truth. And may we see also that this world is not our hope for them or for us. And the Lord is coming back. And the day is going to come where there are going to be those who are going to say, the harvest is in, summer's over, and we're not saved. So, Father, I thank you for these, these words here that I pray tell us something that resonate with us, that sin is serious, it's destructive, it leads to death. Even as Paul would write in Romans chapter 5, that through one man Adam, sin and death came into the world. And so, Father, we thank you that the last Adam, Jesus Christ, came to bring us life. That he hung on that cross to die for our sins. And he rose again. Because of his love for us. And our sins were placed upon him. And we've been washed clean, forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I thank you that we have a living hope that comes through his resurrection. And we've been born again. We have a new beginning. (laughs) Been brought into the family of God. We have such a glorious, glorious status and future. And I do want to pray if there is anyone here that's tonight, maybe listening, that you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ. He loves you. He's calling you to himself. He says, come to me. Give your life to me. Turn and and receive him as your personal Lord and Savior. Ask for forgiveness because that's the greatest need of any man, 
And any woman is to be forgiven of sin. To surrender to Jesus. He is your salvation. There is no other salvation. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And when he rose from that grave, he proved he's the son of God. He conquered sin and death. And he did it all because of his love for you. To give you eternal hope and life and right relationship with the Father. And if you've never done that, the Bible says the good news is this, the gospel. You turn to Jesus, you call out to Jesus, surrender your life to Jesus, ask for forgiveness, and you will be saved. You come in faith. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You come in faith trusting in him the finished work of the cross, the resurrection. And you can do that right now. Sincerely in your heart, you can pray, Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me and you're alive. Speaking to my heart, I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe you rose from the grave and I thank you for forgiving me and dying for me in this new beginning and bringing me into the family of God. Help me to walk with you. And I thank you that I have peace with you. I pray that you would put the peace of God in me as I look to you. In Jesus' name.